0: I'm Adnan Mahmutovich and this is Love and It's Discontents podcast. In the previous episodes, we spoke about Charlotte Bronte's classic Jane Eyre. We discussed the way Mr. Rochester's first wife, Bertha, played a significant role in the way the novel sought to define love. In the conversation with Dr. Lisa Ann Robertson, I discussed the famous feminist argument by Gilbert and Gubar, where Bertha is claimed to be Jane's double, and a representative of an aspect of love which Jane has to sacrifice in order to ground a particular model of Western love. Now, we mentioned the fact that there was another novel, Jane Reese's Wide Sargasso Sea, which sought to explore the very notion of madness and Victorian values by imagining the origins of Bertha, the madwoman in the attic. White could be called fan-fiction that acquired the status of a classic. It is what we nowadays call a prequel, a story that takes place and explains the origins of some of our beloved characters. As a prequel to Jane Eyre, White tells the story of Mr. Rochester's creole wife, Bertha, the famous madwoman in the attic, who rips Jane's veil and burns down Mr. Rochester's estate, leaving him physically challenged. All we know from Jane Eyre is that mister Rochester was tricked into marrying an insane woman. We know she's supposed to be Jane's antithesis, but also, according to some readers, a darker side of Jane herself, that passionate, volatile, untamed force of nature. In Whites Regards to see, Reese wants to give this mad woman an identity and a voice. We find out she was a wealthy Creole in the Caribbean, and that Mr. Rochester, due to the laws of his time, was left without the family inheritance, and he had to marry rich. Rochester arrives to the Caribbean in fever, and everything resembles a nightmare. He is not feeling at home in the exotic setting. He starts losing control over himself. The story then follows his courting, wedding and, ultimately, destroying his bride. He changes her name from Antoinette to Bertha as a way of controlling her, and he uses a rumor that madness runs in her family to break her down. The story ends with Antoinette, now called Bertha, lost and feverish in England. Rhys asks us to consider the relationship between madness and love. In Bronte's novel, we found a number of operative dichotomies, and one of the biggest oppositions was sanity versus madness. It is clear that to be mad is to lose one's rational faculties and have no control over oneself. In fact, to be mad is also not to know who one is. Coming to this strange place called England after being renamed and proclaimed insane. Antonette says, What am I doing in this place? And who am I? To be mad is to really lose one's sense of self. To lose oneself. To use a modern term, Mr. Rochester is gaslighting his wife, persuading her she is mad in nature and that he is the victim of the cruel fates. In Bronte's novel, A certain stability of the self is required for true love. When Jane falls for Mr. Rochester and starts losing her agency, this is shown to be a weakness. And she had to regain control over herself and her life before the romantic love could be realized. Before that fateful uh, exclamation, reader, I married him. This is why the insane Bertha stands in contrast to Jane to highlight the importance of a certain type of stable personality. And yet, as Rees shows, to be in love implies a bit of madness. The cliched phrase, truly, madly, deeply, evokes the idea that to be in love is not to be fully in control of oneself. Rees shows us that there are certain competing definitions of love at stake, or perhaps a contradiction at the core of love. If you think of ecstasy, for instance, it is a Greek word that means being outside of one's stasis, stasis, to be beyond oneself. An orgasm, a sexual climax, is like that, a moment when one is lost and stronger emotions take the wheel. Now, in Ries's novel, we find this constant struggle between sanity and insanity, the stability and the instability of the self. I want to highlight one moment in the story when Mr. Rochester has seduced Antoinette, made her fall in love with him quite passionately, only to then ignore her and even cheat on her with a local girl. This drives Antoinette crazy, of course. A local woman called Christophine tells Mr. Rochester, You make love to her till she drunk with it. No rum could make her drunk like that till she can't do without it. Love as intoxication, or even a form of addiction, is emphasized in several scenes where Antoinette is constantly failing to deal with her unfulfilled desire. Once she says, I cannot endure it more, I cannot, what shall I do? Out of desperation, she asks Christophine to make her a love potion, and Christophine immediately tells her that she can do that, but that will not solve her problem. She says, you talk foolishness, even if I can make him come to your bed, I cannot make him love you. Afterward, he hate you. A love person, unlike something from Harry Potter, is like some voodoo concoction which would, according to Christophine, only arouse Mr. Rochester, make him feel passion, but never true love. So we see how Christophine clearly distinguishes between erotic love and true love. She tells Antoinette the concoction is Obeya magic, uh, a mere chemical stimulus. But for for Antoinette, love is Obeya too. For her, his insistence on calling her by another name is Obeya as well, because Obeya represents the kind of magic that deprives a person of their will, of their selfhood, of their being. In some way, Antoinette's burning desire made her want to take control of Mr. Rochester, to deprive him of his rational English self, so he could relax and start loving her. If love itself is obeya, that means that the magical love potion is a weaker form of intervention, while the passionate love she feels for him is far stronger, far more lasting, and far more maddening. Consider this short novella, in the way, it seems to me that Rhys really picked on the things that I found essential in Jane Eyre concerning the idea of love. Love is very much about the stability of the self, about the integrity of a person, about seeing and accepting the other as they are. But this seeing of the other is always about listening to the story they tell about themselves, respecting that story, Love seems to always have a disturbing effect on those stories. It is about some kind of energies that cannot be simply tackled by reason and neatly fit into well-structured narratives. The loss of the plot goes hand in hand with the loss of selfhood. And in the end, one faces the question, is love a beneficial kind of energy at all? If it is is beneficial under the condition that it be kept under some kind of control, does it then not lose its essence? Doesn't love, as we see in this novel, have to keep some of that maddening character? Can one love truly and deeply without the madly? Do we have to be at least a little bit mad to be entirely sane? We'll revisit the themes of love and madness in the future. For now, thank you for following Love and its Discontents. Much love from Stockholm.